you have to be living in the future all the time. If you're not racing your series B as soon as you close your A, you're behind the ball. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast explores the world of startups, growth stage companies, and late stage companies that have made a big splash in their industries around the world. Accenture reports that in 2019, two out of five cyber attacks were focused on the small to medium-sized business market. The hackers are on the hunt. But so is Huntress Labs. The managed cybersecurity platform for small to mid-sized business recently raised 100 million between CIBC, JMI Capital, and others. For many of us, that kind of walking around money would be burning a hole in our pockets. But for Marcos Torres, he's just getting started. He calls fundraising more serious than getting married. And with the days of zero interest rates behind us, tying the knot isn't as easy as it was in the swinging days of 2019. So for this chief financial officer, what does a build and buy strategy look like? So for Huntress, the most important thing is making sure that there are clear synergies uh, for our partners when they buy from Huntress. So when you think about going and buying something, it's not just yet one more product that we can sell to you, is how do we bring in something that can be fully integrated with our current platform and the value for you as a partner comes from uh, your operational efficiency in being effectively more secure by using more of the products and not basically just you know, getting a price break because you're buying two or three products. So for us, it's more about the value prop of um, one plus one being definitely more than two for you as a partner. What about the build side of, of that strategy? You want to expand quickly, but I can imagine there's an organic component to it as well as a growth through acquisition strategy. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's where the build part comes in. Um, every time we built something, we've uh, put ourselves very closely in the shoes of our partners. One of the interesting things about Huntress is it was built for the SMB, but not just for the SMB itself. It's not just a channel play. It is built for the channel, the specific MSB channel. So the value prop is around how they operationally uh, provide IT services and security. So every time we build something, we make sure that the value is there for our partners and that they're really getting something out of that, that you're not getting from any other tool. We really make sure we understand their workflows and their cost. So it must be a remarkable balancing act between uh, the strategy of acquiring the kind of intellectual property necessary to provide your clients with what they need, as well as to build it. It feels like two totally different muscles. Absolutely. When you think about the product strategy for us, there's two things that, that are really important to highlight. The first one is thinking about the type of acquisitions we've done. So we've done two so far. One was very small and probably didn't even come up in anybody's radar. It was level effect in uh, late 2020. And that was a small startup, two founders that came over and they brought their technology. And 19 months later, that became um, a cornerstone of our managed EDR platform. Then you look at uh, what we bought our security awareness training platform. 
that's probably right around the size where we would buy. I don't think we would buy anything bigger than that because at that point you're buying a product that is so mature that is its own thing. And there's nothing wrong with that for you know, any acquirer. But for us specifically, if we can't really make it a seamless experience where that product is really having synergies with all the other you know, products or services we have on the platform, then it doesn't make sense. When it comes to fundraising, you've uh, described it to me as more serious than getting married. Really? <laughs> yes, we we take that seriously when it comes to to a partnership. When you bring somebody in your uh, cap table, it's not just money, and it's uh, if you think about it in, in in the worst case scenario, it's it's much much harder to you just get somebody out of a of a company, and you've seen horror stories of companies getting recapped, and it's not just what happens at the cap table or the money. There's there's a lot of wounds that it, it's almost like you know cutting an arm and you know hoping that it grows back again. It, I mean the company is never the same, so we know that can be so traumatic for a company that we want to avoid that at all costs. So really, the importance is we take it that seriously, considering we're marrying you when divorce is not an option. So let's make sure you are the right person. Uh, you're not just money; you're bringing a whole lot more than that, and that's what we've done with all our partners. Many startup founders, though, aren't able to tie the financial knot in this environment. How are you managing to do it? Uh, there's two things. One, we've always been very fiscally responsible, even during the times where you could say, you know, burn cash, you need more, you can go get it. You know, two, three years ago, that was sort of the, the tune that the market was singing. And uh, we were always very careful because we... Keep an eye on the market. And one of the things that we realized is there was a lot of indicators that they were just really out of whack. History does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. For us, that was an indication that, yes, there was an opportunity, but there was a window that was probably going to close. So we um, try to capitalize as much as possible on those opportunities growing the business, but we also made sure that we weren't making... um, the, the good old one-way decisions versus your two-way decisions. So we always kept the optionality to turn down the knobs and say, okay, the market change, we can adjust and we're not pitting ourselves on a corner, if that makes sense, from from a management perspective and where our money went, our hiring and all those things. And tell me about the, the optionality of digging your well before you're thirsty. Yes, that that is our uh, philosophy when it comes to capital. Um, one of the mistakes that I feel a lot of entrepreneurs and, and management teams make out there is going out there when you need cash, when you're, you know, three months before running out of cash, six months running out of cash, and not having a plan A, B, C, and D. Capital is the type of stuff, and we saw it in 2008 when just, you know, credit just dried out real quick. And that was a completely different type of crisis. But again, you have to have access to multiple wave forms of capital. And, and have a diversified capital stack and even have very well capitalized partners that, you know, your plan A may be you go raise equity. Your plan B may be, well, you have some debt that you can run on. Your plan C may be, hey, you go raise a bridge with your existing investors. And, and it's not scenario A until you have to go to B or C. You have to be working all those out at the same time. And I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge that folks have thinking about scenario planning. Scenario planning is look at all the very different scenarios you can see in the future and then plan for all of them. So the chances of you getting stuck in one of those edge cases that is covered by your scenarios is very, very little. You can never eliminate it, but but that's the part of risk management that is sometimes scary because there's no right answer. You, you're never going to get 100% insurance and nothing's going to happen. 
but you have to minimize it enough that you can sleep at night. And I can imagine your background in, in private equity uh, plays a role in your understanding that you, you can't just pick up the phone and see who wants to buy. You need to build relationships that ultimately lead to that capital coming in the door. Yeah, 100%. It's understanding so two things. One is understanding at a high growth company, the different stages that the company goes through as you grow real quickly and the things you're going to need to make sure that you have uh, the right capital, the right partners, the right operational support to cross those chasms. And so it's not, it's not linear, it's not uh, constant. If anything, is very changing. And, and part of uh, having access to that capital, it's making sure that you are forming those relationships. And, and the way I put it, you know, when I talk to my team is, you have to be living in the future all the time. If you're not racing your series B as soon as you close your A, you're behind the ball. Digging the well before you're thirsty. It's a great analogy every startup entrepreneur should consider. If you don't start your fundraising until you're in the red, you could find yourself signing a stack of pink slips instead, including your own. But early stage success stories aren't considered a success because they're profitable. They're considered successful because they're growing, taking market share, and focus on building gross margins. With this mindset, Huntress Labs has doubled its revenue and quadrupled its customer base. Torres tells me Huntress isn't a private equity play, it's a VC play. Correct, and understanding the different needs that investors have and how they underwrite a deal, how they look at their opportunities. This is not an EBITDA play. This is not a multiple play just on, you know, what, what is the type of roll-ups that we can do or, you know, financial engineering that we can do in the books to, you know, get to an exit that gives you two, three times, um, especially when you look at uh, early stage investors on your, your seed or your A or even your B. There may be conservative thinking, well, you know, we can get a 3X out of this company, but most likely if you go long-term, you're looking at way, way, way much more than a 3X. And it's about growth. It's very top-line oriented. It's making sure that you're really growing and taking that market share. And uh, if you have those fundamentals of a fast-growing company on the top line and you have the gross margins to be able to pivot towards profitability, that gives investors the um, certainty that in the future, and, and it's, you don't have to re-engineer the business to eventually be profitable. And that's the type of stuff that today you talk to investment bankers, that's what the market wants to see today. So even though you're not profitable right now, and it's not an issue for your investors, you are reducing your burn rate to sort of get yourself to that next stage of the company's evolution. Yeah, of course, that that is part of how we're adapting to to the market. And honestly, the maturity stage that the company needs. Even if the market hadn't turned, maybe we wouldn't be moving as quickly towards profitability. But even you know, when you're in a post-Series C company approaching $100 million in revenue in the next 12 months, you have to change. You have to have that level of maturity where you can say, I will be profitable in the near future. This is a different world and you got to live in this world, not in the past. You've managed to quadruple your customers and, and, and double your revenue. Tell me about optimizing for growth and what role being founded by three former NSA hackers may play in that success. Well, I think it really starts with, with the fundamentals, Michael. 
part of the story that the founders will tell you and you know how they got inspired to found Huntress and build a product, not just what they built, but how they built it. You know, they work in very small teams, two to three people. Um, even teams that are working the same mission cannot share information. Even being in, you know, at NSA and and, and all that high, uh, you know, top secret uh, environment. But when they think about when you have to come up with something, build a tool, put together a solution, the internet is their sandbox. So when you bring that to the design of the product and even the go-to-market motion of the company, and you think, well, who's making the buying decisions and the technology, the technical decisions for small and medium businesses? And you realize that you know, a dentist just wants to be pulling teeth or filling cavities. They don't care about you know, what cybersecurity you're using for it, or even honestly, what office suite products you're using. So it's the pains that the MSPs have as small businesses themselves. And it's also solving the pains that their customers have and the MSPs are solving on their behalf. So when you really start looking at those two, three things that are super key, super important for your stakeholders, and it's it's a good old Amazon thing about being very customer obsessed. It just so happens that we have two customers that tend to fall into the same category, but have different pains. When you really find the intersection of those pains and you can solve those in a very efficient way and at a uh, cost that really makes sense for them and it's value and it's total cost of ownership, not just how much you're paying for the license, that's where the real magic happens. Being customer obsessed is what led to the quadrupling of the customer base and doubling of revenue. But that's only possible if your company is capable of scaling up. That's where the profitability comes from. And scaling up means building a business that doesn't require equally scaling up costs to meet that growth challenge. Torres tells me it all starts with the target customer. You mentioned that dentists are, are more interested in pulling teeth than fighting cybercrime. Why target small and mid-sized businesses like dentists and others instead of the Fortune 500 companies? The problem with the Fortune 500 is there's only 500 of them. <laughs> You're thinking bigger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you look at the long tail, the SMB, it's just huge. And and I feel when when you look at the investments that a lot of VCs have done historically, there's either what we call the, the fly hunting, right? It's the the business to consumer. You're trying to get you know a dollar or fifty cents from you know uh, two billion customers, and that gets you you know, a huge number. Or then you go to the enterprise, right? You only have to close ten or fifteen, twenty deals that are huge, and then you know you're in the you know tens or or hundreds of millions of uh, ARR, depending on what you're selling. There's been development coming down from the enterprise down to the mid market because there are solutions, there are investments there, but Everyone has always shied away from that long tail from uh, consumer up, but mid-market down. It's scary and it's highly risky. And a big part of us going through the MSP uh, community is they insulate us a lot from that uh, failure rate or those ups and downs of the actual SMBs themselves. Sorry, the, the MSP is the real customer to us. And they may lose one customer, but they get two. And, and we get those two customers and they really handle all the, all the sales motion, all the growth and all the things that really make operating with SMBs really expensive. And, and that also helps us keep our gross margins high. We don't really um, go deep into remediating a lot of the problems when an incident happens in an SMB. 
we uh, basically are the outsourced suck for the MSP. We tell them what's happening. We give them a playbook. We have the ability to basically isolate a host and make sure that you know whatever's going on does not spread. And we even give them an option to do automated remediation with one button where they approve whatever we can do. And to be honest, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but they still get the playbook to go fix it. But that's on the MSP to do it. For us, it's just basically having and keeping those security experts focused and finding the shady hackers that are there disrupting the SMBs. And and those are the businesses that are living under the um, cybersecurity poverty line, where security in terms of paying for the tools and paying for the experts to keep them safe, it's just cost prohibitively. So that is the big value prop of Huntress. We actually allowed you to afford the type of security that otherwise you couldn't. And that was the premise that the founders had when they created the company. And I can imagine that is what gives you the ability to scale. When we spoke with Expensify, their CEO pointed out that if every time they made a sale, they needed a salesperson to do that, you couldn't scale a, a business that way. And it sounds like in a similar vein, you've built your organization around the ability to expand without having to add yet another body sitting in a chair in an office. That's correct. And, and really, when we approach problems, when you think about what, what sort of things do you need to solve for the business, we always, always, always start with technology. Technology is hyperscalable. So you first come to the problem and say, how can I solve this problem with technology? And then you take it all the way as, as much as you can with technology. And then the next step is process. How do you put in place processes or change your current processes to further optimize where you couldn't optimize with technology? And then the very last answer is, what kind of people do you need to add? Because people are the most expensive part of, of uh, a software business. So if you generally follow that logic and that formula, you you tend to build things that are highly scalable because technology is really the high lever here that uh, the, I think a lot of people sometimes miss that just throwing bodies at problems rarely fixes the problem itself. It's just, you're just addressing the symptom. Based upon our conversation here today, if there was one key takeaway you wanted for a startup entrepreneur, what would it be? Think long-term, put yourself in the future. With what you're building, are you building it? And is that going to work for the next year? Is that going to work for the next five years or the next 10 years? If you're really living in the future, especially as leadership, because you're going to have ICs that are just doing your work today. Your job as an entrepreneur, your job as a CEO, your job as a CFO is to really live in the future and be that leader that has that vision. And part of the vision is how big can this be? But also, how can this actually work? It's not just, you know, you're not just chasing a pie in the sky. This can actually happen. So having either that partner that brings you down to earth or, or being that person that really thinks about how beautiful and amazing this can be, uh, you know, up and to the right, but also how does it actually get implemented? Um, it's super key. And, and I feel there's a lot of failure in startups because you, you miss the, the basics of operationally, how does this work? And also, how do you make money out of this thing? Marcos Torres will continue to ask the big questions as he drives Huntress Labs to profitability. He's doubled the annual revenue two years in a row and quadrupled that customer base to about 100,000. His continued focus on building that base of small to medium-sized companies, letting others chase the Fortune 500 and using his track record to dig wells before he's thirsty is expected to continue to fuel his success.
This has been the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast, where we learn the secrets to innovation economy success from the entrepreneurs who are paving the way for the future. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening.